you've turned up to be the rescue team and you can't say to the people, well, we're not going in because it's too dangerous. They, they, you know, the, the families were standing out the front with photos. Well, today we have the first of our special edition episodes where we're going to talk to everyday people that have done extraordinary things. Today we're joined by Bruce Cameron, a 42-year firefighting veteran from Fire Rescue New South Wales, who recently retired as a superintendent. Bruce started his firefighting career on the back of a truck as a retained firefighter at Glenbrook, back when the issued gear was a woolen jacket with brass buttons and an axe. Bruce talks to us about his career focusing on rescue operations and in particular, USAR, Urban Search and Rescue, which led him onto multiple international deployments. Bruce was deployed to the Banda Aceh tsunami, where over 100,000 people lost their lives, and the Christchurch earthquake in New Zealand, where he was a team leader performing rescue operations in dire circumstances. We hear from Bruce about his pursuits outside work, which are just as impressive. Bruce is an accomplished author and historian of the Blue Mountains area, a painter and a rock climber. Now this chat isn't sugar-coated at all, and listener discretion is advised. Bruce talks about the brutal realities of some of the things that he's faced and had to do, both graphically and psychologically. And remember, there are links in our show notes to the support services available. So these special editions are going to be called Hot Debrief Episodes, because we'll talk about what worked well, what didn't work so well, and what they would do differently in their amazing lives. And they will form part of the Heart to Heart Walk podcast, because that's what this walk is actually all about. Anyway, special edition number one. Here we go. Well, listeners, today this is a hot debrief episode. We are here today with Bruce Cameron, AFSM, uh, from Fire Rescue New South Wales, recently retired. Uh, very recently retired, actually. G'day, Bruce. G'day, Matt. Thanks for having me today and having a chat. Yeah. No, look, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, I've got to be honest, when this whole thing started coming together, particularly with the focus of doing these special edition episodes with people having amazing stories like your own, you were literally the first person I thought of to try and get on. And hey, you said yes. So uh, <laughs> we're pretty lucky to have you on board today. And uh, we'll get to the reasons why that's that was definitely the case historically from how I've come to know you, but uh, knowing what you've done in your career and, and outside your career is actually uh, you know, what we're here today. But look, just to start us off, Bruce, tell us a little bit about yourself. So where, where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? Listen, I grew up in the Lower Blue Mountains at a place called Glenbrook. I went to school at Glenbrook. Uh, and then went to the local high school just down the road at Emu Plains. I spent a lot of my time at school in the bush, uh, bushwalking, exploring the creeks and ridges and a lot of camping in the mountains and further afield. But I sort of had an affinity with being out in the scrub from a very early age. We overlooked the national park. We lived on the edge of the national park. My my best mate going through school, his father was the local ranger. That's handy. Yeah, it was very (laughs) handy. 
You have to call it in from time to time. Head keys to all the access gates and things (laughs) like that. And I suppose in a way, projecting where my life's finished up, he he sort of, him and another guy, uh, Jack Buer, who was the other ranger, really from probably as a teenager started to teach about bushfires and about the bush. And I just took a real interest in it. So from school and growing up in the mountains, I think they actually were the foundation stones of how my career turned out was learning about uh, fire when they went to hazard reductions and we'd, you know, back in those days there was no planning. They just went and they lit a gum leaf to make sure it was burning <laughs> the right way, then off they went. And I sort of learned a lot from those guys. And then when the opportunity came, when I was an apprentice to to become uh, an on-call or retained firefighter, um, I had an interest in it underpinned mm. by the, the information that I'd learnt from the National yeah, Parks right. Rangers. So I'm guessing... Back in those days, what what sort of late seventies we that was? That was late seventies or seventies and late seventies. Yeah. And I joined uh, the then New South Wales Fire Brigade as a retained firefighter in nineteen eighty. Yeah, so right. I was only eighteen. So uh, okay, yeah, when right. I joined, and um, yeah, I often cast my mind back. How did I really get interested? And it was an interest in the bush. And I did a lot of rock climbing back then yep. as a teenager, and even still till today. And and bushwalking and things like that, but it, I think it all stems back from those really early days when I, I learnt so much about um, um, the bush through those guys, and that led me really into my career. Yeah, right. I'm I'm assuming uh, work health and safety rules back in those days were a little different. So, as a kid, did you get a chance to kick along with some of those guys before you were? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah I'm yeah. guessing they took you out on the on yep. the job and doing those sort of activities yep. as a, as a young bloke. So yeah, absolutely. It, um, well, even when I joined, uh, as a, uh, retained firefighter, the, I don't think the act came in until, um, like it was 2003 or whenever it was. was yeah. So there were, there was no real occupational health and safety back then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it might've been 1983. I don't, when the first act came out, but yeah, generally it was open slather. Yeah. And, um, Different it, days. It, different days, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So as a retainer um, out of Glenbrook Station, how did you find that? Yeah, I joined in 1980. Uh, as I said, I was 18. It was a really uh, dry period at the time in those early 80s. I remember before I went full-time uh, in 1984 and I joined as a permanent firefighter. We were in a bit of a drought phase and I learnt a lot about bushfires. There was another... Yeah, no, uh, 82 was a big, bad very, drought, wasn't it? Very yeah. bad drought. Yeah. So it was it was busy for a retained station, you know, probably 350 calls a year, that type of thing. Wow, that's pretty... Yeah, pretty, pretty busy. Yeah. yeah, and they were always running down the hill into Penrith to yep. back Penrith up. So I learnt on the job very quickly, but I'd also learnt, had that underpinning understanding of bushfires and, and the bush through the stuff I'd learnt mm. from the National Parks Rangers. Yeah. Um, so with, with the old old hands that were, had been fighting fires at Glenbrook for, you know, 20, 30, 50, some of them, the old captain, uh, 50 years, um, before he retired, you picked up a lot and you learned a lot. And, mm. um, that's a lot of experience. It is. Yeah. So yeah. I was, even though I was young and influential, it was great to be able to learn from people that had so many decades of service. Yeah. Right. Mm. That's not always the case these days, sadly, is it? With, uh, you, you've no. had a lot to do with training uh, in your career, which we'll we'll get to uh, soon, no doubt. But um, tell us about mm. the training, how it was to become a retained firefighter back in well, the there 80s. Was, yeah, there was no actual course. You just turned up to the station. Uh, and, right. And basically you were 
after a week or so of, of getting your gear or, uh, issued to you, and most of that was second-hand gear until your original gear, actually your, your personal gear yeah. came through, uh, and you were on the truck and up and running. So it was very, very basic, but they sort of knew that, you know, I'd, I'd be in the backwaters a little bit until I got to learn the ropes, and then yep. after a month or two, I was just considered a member. So as I said, no Work Health wow. and Safety Act. There was no modules to complete. They basically said, yeah, you're good to go. And uh, that's all there was to there it. Definitely no e-learning packages back then. No. Tell no. us about your gear. What was what? What did your gear consist of back then? Yeah, it was the old leather top boots. Literally, what they had in um, you know, nineteen oh one. Yeah. Um, the woolen tunic with two rows of brass buttons, uh, <laughs> an axe that you had to wear, and a hose and nozzle spanner on the other side. But none of them were instantaneous, like Stortz couplings. It was all old threaded couplings and we had a World War II GMC water tanker, surplus World War II, but obviously all painted up red and a Morris composite was like the, the local town pumper. So Phew. the fire engine was, well, that was a Braidwood body, so you actually sat on the outside of it. Uh, <laughs> no cabin, you actually sat on the outside and, and hung onto it. Uh, and no electric siren, I had the old, like literally almost like an air raid siren. Yeah, and, right. Um, you sat on the back and um, if it was raining, you got drenched. If it was <laughs> middle of winter, you froze. Yeah, so it was it was very, uh, very almost primitive, you know, surplus World War II appliances back then. Right. So you did four years as a retained firefighter. What were mm. you doing outside of that? Yeah, well, when I left school, I got a job as an apprentice carpenter, but he went broke. It was pretty tough um, back then. It was in like a recession. And then I got... Uh, in with a local plumber and he was also retained and that's how sort of I got that when the carpentry apprenticeship went bust and the guy went belly up the other guy said well I've got work let's jump on board as uh, apprentice plumber uh, but in the end I got into the permanents yep. uh, and I never finished either the yeah, carpentry right. or the plumbing apprenticeship because I was told that You've, you've made it across the line to get into the permanent in then the New South Wales Fire Brigade yep. and that opportunity mightn't come up again. So I took took the advice from my elders, so to yeah, speak, yeah. and um, joined the fireys and, you know, 42 years of service a couple of months ago. Yeah, so it, it all worked out. So yeah. with my combined retained and permanent, it was 42 years. So 42. that advice I got was, was good advice mm. and, you know, apart from some – fairly prickly moments in the career, it, it, you know, I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. So going into the Permos, tell us about that experience. So where, where was the training centre then and what was the training like? The training was 21 weeks, which was bizarre because, as I said, uh, within when I joined as a retained firefighter on core firefighter, it wouldn't have been 21 days. It was basically <laughs> learning on the job and next minute I'm doing 21 weeks at Alexandria out near the airport at Sydney. Uh, Alexandria Training College uh, and went there. It was quite strict. A lot of ex-Navy and Vietnam vets who were the instructors who were with fire, uh, you know, with the fire brigade then, but it was very different to being a retained firefighter because there was structure to it. You did have to do modules and complete yeah. structured training, which I, quite, I did enjoy it at the time and I was lucky. I didn't tell any of the instructors that I was ex-retained and Right. A few of them said, geez, you picked that up pretty quick, young fella. But <laughs> I, I didn't let on that, um, you know, I'd had nearly four years on the job and I'd been to a lot of bushfires and factory fires and car accidents and stuff. You didn't want to get a so, uh, target on yourself no, I didn't for want the to training? Get a target. It was only in the last day or two that they realised <laughs> right. that um, 
I'd been a retained firefighter. Yeah, so that's a good move. Yeah, that's good advice for everyone. The grey man, I think. The, yeah, what you call it. You just be it. the grey man. Yeah. Actually, I think I remember hearing that a lot of the protocol, uh, ceremonial and drill, and and uh, you know that sort of protocol procedure stuff is based on navy. Correct. Is that, that's, so that's where it comes yep. from, right? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. coming out of the uh, the college or out of mm. your training there, mm. where did you? Where was your first station? Uh, it was really a bit of a holding pattern. I went to North Parramatta, which was the North Mead station, but only for a short while. And then I went to Penrith, uh, which was really busy, yep. uh, very busy back then. Still is, uh, I think. It still <laughs> is. Yeah, absolutely. And did quite a few years there. And then in 91, major changes to rescue in New South Wales occurred <clears throat> after a couple of inquiries and things. And I was offered to go to Blacktown, uh, which was going to become like the Western Sydney Rescue Station. And with my climbing background and knowledge of ropes and things like that, and, and being at Penrith, which was a secondary rescue station at the time, uh, I, I sort of developed an interest in that. And when they said it was going to, Blacktown was going to become a uh, primary rescue station, I put up my hand to go there and finished up, I think, doing about nine years at Blacktown. So a lot, most of my career, well, if certainly in the first 10 years, was all in Western Sydney. Yeah, right. Yeah, so I do, I do remember uh, back in my day, Blacktown Fire Rescue Station was a pretty well-respected team. Yeah, it was very busy. Um, we actually had a dedicated like heavy rescue unit there, um, or salvage rescues they were called back then, and the pumper had the, the standard fire engine had rescue gear on as well. But it was busy to the point that you get actual jobs. You'd probably get two or three calls a day, and out of that, you know, at least one or two of them would be an actual rescue uh, job. Like there. a working and, job. Yeah, but a major car accident or someone trapped in machinery, yep. that type of thing. So it was it was very busy. Mm. Um, po- pokey old rundown fire station that was, you know, built in the 70s, but a fantastic learning experience and, and really good crews on all the shifts. It was fantastic. Is it that experience there? Because obviously uh, we'll, we'll get to it in uh, later in this podcast, but your career was fairly heavily dominated by the rescue scene. Yeah, I think having done four years as retained and at Penrith, we were running, even though there's a variety of calls, you sort of got a bit of sick and tired of going to grass fires and things like that. And yep. I gravitated, as I said, I went to Blacktown um, on the specialist rescue unit. And, and from there, uh, urban search and rescue was um, coming in following things like the Oklahoma bombing in, in America. And they yeah. said, we need to have a bigger capacity and then they started looking at the world picture and what other countries do and what the United Nations through their the uh, through INSERAG, the International Search and Rescue Advisory Group, they sort of set up guidelines and I could see that it was a really interesting future uh, and so I gravitated really away from general firefighting, got into uh, rescue and USAR to the point where I applied as a back in the days with the New South Wales State Rescue Board as a senior rescue instructor and became a senior rescue instructor for fire rescue uh, endorsed by the State Rescue Board. And then after that, it just sort of snowboarded into um, becoming a USAR instructor. And my career, even though it started at Glenbrook as a retained firefighter and then, as I said, into Western Sydney, I could see it was more uh, focused on getting away from general firefighting and, yep. and, and following that specialist. And as I said, particularly with uh, 
climbing and mountaineering background, a lot of the vertical rescue and things like that was pretty well second nature. Plus I had a real interest in it. Um, so I was getting paid to do stuff that I really enjoyed. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Like on a, on a personal note, I, I, uh, I still remember our interactions in the, uh, in the old days. Yeah. And, um, you yeah. know, your, uh, your, I suppose, knowledge and specialization in VR, vertical mm. rescue and, and, and other mm. technical rescue is, uh, you know, pretty evident, you know, it was, um, mm. it was well, it was well recognized in the circles that I was in, that's for sure. So, um. Yeah, I think, I think too, uh, thanks Matt for the comment. The, the thing is, if you have a passion f for something, you, you tend to do mm. well at it. And I, um, you know, I had quite a few mentors, they've all retired too. I'm still really good friends with them, but it was in a rescue in New South Wales then uh, with police rescue, fire, fire rescue and, and the AMBOs and the um, volunteer agencies as well. It was really, when I look back, I, um, it, we're in our infancy. Everyone was developing. Mm. Um, and, and when you look at it now, it is very formalised. There's training packages, there's competency, you know, units of competency. But back then it was really just, um, you were growing and developing and techniques were, were almost developed is our evolving go. right yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. Whereas now it's, which I suppose is that's 30 or 40 years, it's got to where it is today. Yep. Um, and I think looking back, I don't think rescue's probably ever been in as good a position it is now. You know, the cops and ambos will turn up and uh, they come up, you know, with a strategy or an instant action plan, whereas years ago they'd almost be working in silos. Same yep. with the others. Whereas now... You only got to look at the recent floods, you know, when everyone's in New South Wales working in the swift water space together as teams. And a lot of the time there, that they might have a fire rescue team teamed up with a police rescue team. And mm. um, years ago, it was almost protecting individual turf because they thought there wasn't oh, enough yeah. work, work for everyone. Whereas all those barriers have been broken down. And even from the early days, I always thought that that sort of mentality was never going to work. And yep. I've always had the philosophy, it's about the patient, it's about the people. Yep. And, and it's not about what service you work for. And I always had that from day one, that it was about looking after the individual. And I saw that like in overseas deployments, you might be working with the military one day and you'd be working with a Singaporean USAR team the next. And yeah. It doesn't matter what badge you've got on. Uh, it's all about getting the job done. Actually, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that because uh, <laughs> there's no doubt, uh, there, there's no doubt at times been professional competitiveness. And as you said, like turf protection, mm, that's mm. sort of been rife actually. Um, mm. I know going back uh, to my time, uh, it, it was definitely mm. an issue. And um, yeah, yeah, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was a thing and, and I hope it's not still that way. No, it's not. A, it's really good now. It's fantastic. Uh, when I was the inspector up at the Blue Mountains, um, you know, I used to meet probably every couple of weeks with the sergeant in charge of the rescue squad up there. And if there was any issues, it was, and there wasn't many at all. It was usually a communication center issue yeah. if there was ever an issue, but it works really well. All those barriers have been broken down. And I think, as I said, we've gone through that major development phase, yep. but back 20, 20 years, 30, you know, when you were on the tools and I was on the tools, I think people thought that there wasn't enough work for yeah. all the agencies, whereas now they realise most agencies, again, with the swift water stuff and with the natural disasters we're having with climate change, that we need everyone we can get. And yeah. I think people are starting to realise that it's not 
Uh, it's not a turf war. It's not professional rivalry is good because it keeps yeah. people keen. Uh, I was going to say, please don't tell me that's gone. Yeah. No, 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 it's still there. And things like the rescue comps, like the Arrow, yeah. Australian Road yeah, yeah. Accident Rescue Comp, and you know, I know the um, the team. Some of them. Are I think that's actually it. healthy. It keeps that's people on their toes. Yeah, and, it does. And there's a bit yeah. of that. Um, I yeah. think there's even though it might be a little ego driven, but some of that can be used quite effectively mm. in in relation to, um, I suppose, pursuing that. Mm. That little, oh, absolutely. That little, that little edge. And, and it works um, both ways. And I, I had yeah. regular, I retired as the um, superintendent technical training, which rescue, and that's one reason I applied for the job, was looking after rescue statewide, as, apart from a couple of other portfolios. And we'd regularly have uh, the full-time police rescue squad guys from Sydney come out or the uh, Encore or the guys from Blue Mountains come down and, and um, you know, have a vertical, and with the AMBOs as well, with the special operations teams and, and their... Uh, rescue operators. So it, it's really good to think now that the focus is on people in need and not about individual egos and, mm. <coughs> and, or, and agencies. Or, yeah, I was going to say organisational egos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Organisa- and, and there was a little bit of that, I, th- I think, was driving it back in the probably the 80s and the 90s was actually the organisations were the drivers and the poor operators then had to turn up on scene and, yeah. and sort of put up with that nonsense but it's gone now which is re- well pretty well gone and I, I think everyone's focused on getting the job done which is mm. a really healthy thing to to you know a great place to be at absolutely that blacktown is there any is there any key moments that you remember from your time there um yeah it was unbelievable um unbelievably busy always busy um particularly being i was mainly on the, the heavy rescue there yeah it, it was you know, as I said, a lot of industrial accidents, a lot of high-speed motor vehicles, a lot of the outside or outer area around Blacktown wasn't developed as it is now. So we had a lot of high-speed motor vehicle uh, rescues and things. But, um, you know, a great learning curve. And mm-hmm. I think it then allowed me, uh, once I passed my station officer's exam, uh, I did a year on the road and then um, and then applied for the job as a SRI, a senior rescue instructor. And uh, I did that for about four years. And I think having that skill, uh, starting at, at Penrith, but certainly at Blacktown in all those years, um, I had a really good skills base to um, then impart that knowledge and deliver as a, a rescue instructor. As an instructor, yeah. And that rolled into, of course, the USAR side of it. And then the bigger disaster, the DART, the Disaster Assistance Response Team, which it's really known as now. Mm. So it's not only USAR, it's that beyond the rubble pile, humanitarian stuff, be it a tsunami, be it, you know, whatever it is around the world um, in the Asia-Pacific region. Yep. So I've gone from, a, you know, a retained firefighter at Glenbrook learning from National Park Rangers <laughs> about how to do a, a cool hazard reduction through to, you know, learning through the old basically panel-beating Anapac gear that used to be the yeah, you know, on the trucks uh, through to flying in RAAF C-17 Globemasters to disasters like the New Zealand earthquake and yeah. you know, exercises in the USA. So the career has been really engaging and interesting, but really very progressive, I suppose, from those early days to see when I retired. What's the what's Amazing. the like from, from an equipment or training or capability change? Is there anything that stands out in your mind as being the biggest ticket evolution? 
Yeah, I think to be honest, the vehicles, uh, the vehicles always, always were um, stowed poorly. Uh, you know, back injuries, getting gear off now. Everything's on slides. The lighting's fantastic. The you yep. never hear a fire. I don't know about the other services, but you never hear a fiery complain about the quality of the rescue gear or how it's stowed or how the trucks perform. Right. Uh, so we've come a long way as far as uh, the type of gear, how it's stowed, how it's got together, but also that has to be linked has to be linkage to the training. And you look at the new Fire Rescue Academy or the Emergency Services Academy, the ESA, because yep. it's open for all the services but run by Fire and Rescue. You know, there's a major collapse structure uh, training ground. There's an MVA uh, road crash rescue training area. There's um, They've actually got trains and plat- um, railway platforms, um, confined space props, partial collapse structures. The whole thing is set up for training for rescue and or firefighting rescue, but certainly a large part of it is for rescue. Whereas before, you'd go to the local wreckers and and yeah. and, and chop up, chop up a Ford Falcon or a Holden Commodore, and <laughs> that's right. Um, <clears throat> you'd have to fight off the black snakes first, eating the grass <laughs> to you know to, to get a safe area. Whereas now, there's these purpose-built training facilities, purpose-built, really ergonomically designed um, fire engines and rescue trucks, um, and it's. It's come. Yeah, I think it's a long the same way. with SES, VRA, mm. PRS. Like mm. you, you can see the the vehicles they've got now and mm. their gear that's in them is. It's a long way from the old inner pack little uh, little yep. yellow yellow steel mm. box. It is <laughs> in the back of a Ute. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It is. We've come a long way. Bruce, I've had a look through what you call a summarised bio and it's longer than most people's full bio <laughs> <laughs> um you've done some amazing uh work domestically but a lot of work internationally training uh, you touched on some of it, but um training and and operational deployments the deployment over into Bandarache in indonesia in 2004 i'm sure that was the first of that sort of event that you'd ever been to so could mm. you talk us through uh, a, how you found out about it, what the deployment looked like, and then a bit about what it was like being there. Yeah, sure. Well, obviously it came on TV that uh, there'd been a major, um, was in the holiday period, obviously, hit, hit on the 26th of January and, uh, you know, there was a news flash and I was full-time in the rescue section then and a, and a USAR instructor and um, thought, geez, they, they might deploy a team over there. So... The bottom line was um, we got some info that looked like there might be more of an operational support team going in a medic, medic for medical operations. So we were on standby to deploy with an Australian medical team, and I was told that I'd be I'd be I was one of the um, instructors or one of the firefighters or as an officer then a station officer that would be deploying if, if the balloon went up, and sure enough, it did. Yep. And uh, they got the phone call and they said, you'll be flying out of Richmond Air Base tomorrow morning. So I was watching the news to try and gather as much intel as I could. And they said it was bad. Obviously, the you know, there was um, tens of thousands of people, tens mm. of thousands of people deceased. It was, you know, highlight that when I arrived. But, um, yeah, so we, we went to uh, myself and another... Um, a firefighter went to provide all the operational support 
uh, equipment that we normally take on a USAR deployment, but this was a surgical and medical deployment. So things like generators, the foods, the tents, uh, everything that we needed to support a team because there was nothing left over there. So we took um, <clears throat> everything that we needed to keep that surgical team and medical team up and running for a few weeks. So we, we went to Richmond, uh, flew to Darwin in a rough plane from Darwin into uh, Jakarta and then the next day stayed overnight in Jakarta and then into to Arche and um, the RAF pilot did a low fly, literally a couple hundred feet above uh, where the tsunami had hit and it was just devastating. You could just see. Are you guys all looking out the window? Oh, yeah, we're looking yeah. out the windows just going, wow. So could, who was on board then? Uh, there was a team of 28. Um, we had two care flight um, medical retrieval doctors off the care flight helicopter. We had uh, two SCAT paramedics two firefighters and the rest were doctors and nurses, largely uh, from military. They were um, reservists in the special, what they call the special reserve. So they were uh, anaesthetists, surgeons and things like that. So yeah, the two fireys, two ambos, the two uh, care flight uh, doctors and the rest were all from uh, from hospitals uh, around Australia, not only New South Wales, right. uh, and off we went. So when we landed, it, it was quite impacting. I'd never seen, I don't think anyone alive had ever seen anything like it. You know, one of the doctors was an ex-Vietnam trauma doctor. When he was actually a young guy, he did um, wow. a stint in Vietnam and he said he'd never seen, you know, Vietnam, um, not drawing a comparison, he said was nothing like the trauma he saw mm. in uh, in Arche. And on the truck, I remember we went in and a Unimog that had been brought in on a uh, a C1, Australian C-130 Hercules, and we're on the back of this thing with some space cases full of equipment to go in to try and find a hospital to work out of. And um, I knew it was going to be a long few weeks and I looked down and I saw a person being eaten by a dog. There was a dog was literally ripping this person's calf muscle off to the feed. Uh, you know, it was mm. gnawing into its ankle and uh, I thought, crikey. And the closer we got in to where the tsunami had hit the worse it got, of course, and we we the hospital that we worked out of was a um, maternity training hospital, uh, so it wasn't really set up for a lot not, of surgical up, stuff. Yeah. So we actually used a lot of the we bought uh, from the ambulance case surgical equipment and so on to so they could actually do what they had to do. Was there was a lot of amputations, arms, legs, and that sort of thing from people who had massive trauma. Yeah. Uh, so we we set up that hospital and um, basically that night they started to, to perform um, operations in the, in the, in the operating That field. quick? That quick, yep, yep, because everything was agile and portable. We had to set up lights. Um, you know, they operated under generators that we, the fire rescue generators, we hooked up the lights and, and um, but you've got to remember there's no, there was no police, they were all swept away. There was no local ambulances. Every, you know, it was some, somewhere around 160 to 170,000 people dead. And a lot of those people were in floating in the rivers. They were floating in canals. They were, you know, it was big debris fields just with arms and legs coming out everywhere. And it was quite shocking really to see. Um, and we were about day four or five. So they were still in disarray, but with the heat and the humidity, it was all starting to get fairly smelly. Yeah. Um, a lot of aftershocks, some really big aftershocks, because obviously the tsunami was created by a, by an earthquake, which was about nine on the Richter scale. So we were constantly <laughs> getting shakes of five, 5.5, 5.6. 5 
the building we're in was already compromised. Was that setting off more tsunami alerts or? Uh, no, not so much uh, alerts, but certainly people were running out of buildings. Yeah. You know, okay. the patients were pulling drips out of their arms and crawling with. Taken off. And, and crawling up the hallways with their legs in plaster to get out thinking another tsunami was coming. Right. So the other thing is we, we actually were trying to, uh, we had our actual base of operations upstairs in case a tsunami came that, um, we were elevated, um, but the operating theatres were downstairs. So we actually were putting in contingencies and safety measures to think that if there was a tsunami, um, that we were at least in an elevated position, had a safety zone right. to go to. But every time there was an aftershock, it put the wind up you. It really did. Yeah, it, I don't um, doubt that. What other yeah. countries were in, in uh, deployed there? Uh, we, yeah, we were the first, apart from an Indonesian team, we were the first right. um, international team to arrive. Uh, in the end, after you know, in the probably day nine or ten, there was America, which was an issue in itself because of the conflict. There was a bit of... Um, you know, it was a little bit prickly, you might say, between Indonesia and the US. Really? Um, Even in that situation? Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, there was medi medi uh, Medicine Sans Frontiers had come from, from uh, France. Um, yeah, so quite a few international teams, but not so much in a USAR context, but more for medical, because there was probably oh, five to 10,000 people that needed medical attention yeah. Uh, and, and surgery, uh, but with no, no one there to do it. So that the focus was just say, it was a real triage focus thing to try and save as many people as, as you could. And how were you getting, yeah. a, like, how were you getting around and how were you? Well, we had one Unimog for that they'd flown in on a, uh, a four wheel drive army vehicle that they'd flown in on a C-130 Hercules and that was it. We actually, how we got around, how we got our equipment, the cache of equipment, we actually, uh, gave a local uh, a fire brigade t-shirt and a ration pack uh, without compromising our own supplies for him to use this cattle truck to like a wooden sided cattle truck to get our gear probably 15 k's from the airport into town um was fuel there was no fuel so we we're really conscious about how to get fuel um yeah so we we um we literally had to trade to try and get transport because there was there was yeah. no high I'm assuming your ration patch packs were uh, <laughs> pretty, yeah. pretty, uh, pretty sort high of. value items yeah. to yeah. trade with. Absolutely, in that scenario. yeah, absolutely. Mm. So uh, yeah, it was a tough, a tough deployment in as much as the tragedy and the trauma, and you know they had a dumpster bin out the back of the hospital, like a you know like a um, probably two meter by two meter dumpster like bin, a skip bin. Sk a skip bin. It yeah. was just full of arms and legs uh, from when they amputated and then under the. Um, the um, Muslim um, rituals, they have to bury the the deceased as a whole person. So when someone would die in the operating theatre or in the ward, they then had to try and find the leg that matched the body so they could actually put it with it to take it to, um, you know, to give it to the family so they could, um, you know, do the burial. But it, and the car park was just... Instead of cars, it was just lines and lines and lines of body bags. It was, yeah, it was quite confronting. Wow. Yeah. God. Really confronting. Yeah. So with yeah. the, um, like your role there as an SO with New South Wales Fire Brigades, um, USAR deployment, was your job 
And I guess the fireys job, they're really supporting the medical aspect of it or were you actually out going and trying to go through buildings? No, no, more more operational support for the hospital. We did have to go into town a few times to try and find water and try and find uh, fuel and things like that. So we actually were in town probably almost daily, uh, which was the sort of epicentre of it all. But no, our job was to make sure they had generators that um, the ration packs, uh, we set up... um, sleeping stretchers, mozzie nets, um, communications, sat phones. So without without the fire rescue guys being there, uh, they wouldn't have been able to to mm. perform any of the, the surgical operations. And it's like all like those that. big jobs, there's lots of mm. cogs. Yeah, yeah, lots of cogs, yeah. yeah. And, but in the end, it was – and they didn't plan on this either. The medical people didn't plan uh, the doctors and nurses that when someone came out of, say, having a leg amputated – there was no post-surgical care because they didn't have anyone because there was not enough nurses. We only had a team of 28 and out of that there was only 20 doctors and nurses. Uh, and so they basically would carry them out of the, the operating theatre, which was really a birthing clinic that we'd converted, mm. and leave them in the garden. We were actually, the fireys were, were uh, stringing up drips uh, on a rose bush so at least they could have an elevated drip in that, but there was no one doing observations, you know, no one doing oxygen saturations or temperature. It was, there was just no one. So volunteers were coming in off the, who weren't impacted by the tsunami were coming in and literally, you know, patting down their head with a, with a wet cloth. That mm. was about the only post uh, operative care that they got. It was because there just wasn't enough people. Mm. Um, and they, they talked about getting more in, but the airport was so congested that um, they just couldn't get flights in. All right. flights out when they tried to evac these people. The medical evacs took probably ten days before they um, they were able to get people out to Madan and Jakarta and places like that. So a lot of people died because there wasn't no fault of the Australian medical team or any of the other medical teams. There just wasn't enough people uh, to look after people when yeah. they had been operated on. Mm. I know you've done a lot of training in your time, but like. Uh, Something like that is quite, you know, out of scale. It's out of this world. It's I've never seen it like it. Uh, as I said, I went to New Zealand to the earthquake and, um, you know, as horrible as it was, um, I think it was about 178 people or something perished in, in Christchurch. But um, Bandra Arche was another, mm. another thing. It was just everything was gone. Um, a whole suburb was on fire when we pulled up, like – Obviously, someone was cooking or had some sort of fire going when the earthquake hit mm. and the tsunami. And um, <clears throat> there was, you know, that was massive. That was the biggest property fire I've ever seen. It was suburbs and suburbs just of houses and factories burnt to the all ground. Going. But the, yeah. All going. But there was no one there to put it out. No fire engines left. Um, so it was like a um, like a movie, but worse. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you couldn't. Yeah, there was a lot of. You know, there was. Little kids that had lost their parents, who were five and six, just screaming out for their, you know, their parents, and um, yeah, it was just horrible. Yeah. As far as um, the magnitude of a disaster, um, yeah, it was it was really confronting. Because you were in there pretty quick, really. At yeah, the end we of the were. Day. So mm. you know, that's early days, and mm. yeah, yeah, it was. It how, was uh, how long were you actually there for in total? Um, I think it was about two weeks from the time we left to the time we got back, but we're actually in Arche about oh, 10 days, I think. Right on. 
Yeah, about 10 days and then the travel days. And then on the way home, of course, we stopped at Jakarta and then flew back. But, um, yeah, it was um, it was pretty full on every minute we were there. And even when we left, we uh, handed over to another Australian team. So I think it was another two or three rotations. So right. it wasn't as though we just packed up and went. It, there was a um, backfill yep. cruise, cruise came in. So it went on for probably, from an Australian perspective, for probably – Close to a month, I think. Right. Yeah, right. and the military uh, stayed even longer. I know the uh, the army; they had um, still had air recoil helicopters operating, which they once again had flown over there. And three or four hours, they bolted them together, and they were in the air. Uh, and they were flying sorties and you know taking food out to remote right. remote coastal locations. It was like a war zone. I've never been to war, but a lot of the military guys said they'd never seen anything like it either. Yeah. So it was quite. Um, Quite a large event and, as I said, very confronting. Yeah. Mass graves, you know, we were driving past mass graves and one of the locals said there's between eight and 10,000 people in those graves and they just had bulldozers digging holes and excavators, mass holes and, and, and just literally dumping people out of the back of dump trucks. But again, under the customs, under the Muslim uh, religion, yeah. they have to try and bury uh, the deceased as, as quick as possible. So it was... Re, you know, mind-boggling to see what was going on. Uh, but I knew, I looked at it that it was a, um, it's just a natural occurrence. It was a um, geological event that created that uplifting of the ocean, which created the tsunami. But um, I don't think I would have coped if it was like a war situation. You know, we had tens of yeah. th- tens of thousands of people that had been killed by other from people. A, from a man-made. Made, yeah, I yeah. think it would have been a very different, way of comprehension and, and dealing with it. So I suppose I got a little bit of comfort out of nature's a fairly powerful thing. We, we're here yep. to help. We can't do a lot about what's happened other than, other than help. Yeah. Um, and I think that was one of my coping mechanisms was just telling myself that this is nature. Sadly, yeah. people are hooked up in it, but, um, yeah, it was one, one way of coping, I suppose. When you, um, when you got home, what did you do? Yeah, I was pretty tired. I, it was a funny story. I, I rang my wife from the airport and said, you know, basically um, um, get a get a six pack in the fridge. We can't, <laughs> you know, really hanging out for a beer and, and not VB. <laughs> not, no, definitely not VB. But I got home and I cracked the top off one and I couldn't drink it. I was so tired and drained. I just wanted to have a shower and go. It was amazing the whole time in. In Arch, I'm thinking, geez, it'd be good to get home and have a shower and have a beer and get back. And as soon as I got home, it was, I couldn't drink it. It was bizarre. I just was so tired emotionally and, and physically, I think. It was really hot over there, very humid. And so I um, I think I slept for a day or two. I didn't do much because I was fairly, mm. numb, fairly numb. And I thought I was traveling okay. I thought, you know, it was a big impacting disaster. And, um, you know, I thought, geez, I got away with that. Yeah. I know we were talking when you uh, before we started today about you had a bit of a getaway down on the coast with you. Yeah, well, that's yeah. After, after a few that. days, we went down to uh, the south coast um, to a little holiday house that um, my um, my wife's family had, and um, yeah, I woke up. It was a really bizarre thing. Woke up on the beach mid after or late in the afternoon and looked out and. Um, I must have been dreaming about where I'd been in Archer. And when I woke up, I looked out the ocean and just could see sheets of tin and timber and shipping containers and parts of houses. And I sort of almost, well, not started shaking, but almost put my hand, I palmed my hands on the sand to get up and start running. And then I realised that it was really just 
me waking up and the the dream or the imagery that I'd been seeing was obviously from Arche, but I could hear the, the waves crashing in. And just to top it off, with, to my son and my daughter went for a swim. We said, don't go out too far. And of course, they went out too far. And the next minute, my wife and I, literally, no one else on the beach, five o'clock at night, uh, had to rescue our two kids. So here I was trying to have a relaxing uh, time <laughs> after being in, in uh, Arche. And we, we literally, it was the closest our two kids have ever come to die. To dying. And I think we went back to the uh, little holiday house and drunk the best part of a bottle of gin just to calm our nerves. <laughs> there were some left because we had some the next night, but <laughs> it was, um, yeah, not what I needed post uh, no. going to Archie. But, uh, and the kids can still remember it. You know, they, they said... Um, going out in a rip? Yeah, got caught in a rip. And they How had, old would they have been? Oh, probably, I don't know, maybe eight and ten or something like oh that. Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, yeah. But luckily, since they were babies, we'd put them into swimming lessons and both, you know, they were, had won a few swimming carnivals and things like that. So it just pays to make sure if you have kids, make sure they know how to swim because I'd think if we hadn't done that uh, on top yeah, of the tsunami, story. we might have been going to a f- double funeral. So uh, Holy truly it was, it was real touch and go. And um, when it's your own kids that you're rescuing, it, it puts the wind up. you. <laughs> so I didn't yeah. really need that after uh, after going to Arche. Uh, yeah, but, Bruce, like that's a yeah. that's a hell of a wind down. Yeah, well, it it, it really um, it did. It put the wind. It probably put the wind up me as much as what I saw and experienced at Arche when it's your own family. It's yeah. um, it's a connection yeah, you don't want to make. Yeah, yeah. It, that's right. Yeah, but um, yeah, so I struggled on after that. It was a bit a bit a lot of. Um, request to talk at things like rotary clubs and things. And at first I was a little bit hesitant to do that. Yeah. But it, I think it actually helped because you could share the load a bit. And, um, how did you feel mm, being asked to talk about it? At first I didn't want to, like when I, when I was asked, I thought, I don't, I just don't want to keep reliving what I saw. But after the first couple of talks, um, I actually, as I said, I think it shared the load a bit and, mm. and I found that people were actually interested in the work that we did over there. So mm. it was a positive thing as much as uh, I was not keen to do it at first, after talking about it really, really helped. And I think people appreciated um, what what we'd done um, and it it was therapeutic in a way because even though you were reliving what you did, uh, it consolidated that the work, what you did was worthwhile. Uh, so, yeah, I think I think it was a positive thing looking back on it. Mm. Mm. Bit of uh, time to, I guess, reflect and yeah, yeah, go over it and deal with it in a way. Mm. Like, uh, So 2011 was a big year for you. Queen- yeah, it was. Went to Queensland for the floods. Was um, that the cyclone? Yeah, it came down. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I was, I think I was still a station officer then. Anyhow, I was a part of a swift water team mm-hmm. and went up there and um, yeah, massive, massive floods in 2011, particularly in the outskirts of um, Brisbane and um you know, those outlying suburbs. Um, Which cyclone was that? I've forgotten the name of those. Uh, it might have been Yasi. 
I think. Yassi. It was at Yassi, I think. Yeah, yeah. Debbie, well, I went, I went to Debbie as well, but Yassi was, uh, I think, that Did one. Did you work in New South Wales at all? Or? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, a little bit in New South Wales. <laughs> but that was quite confronting too, you know, people, um, deceased washed off causeways and cars and things like that. There was um, with yeah. working with the cops with body recoveries and I've quite a few swift water jobs. Um, it, it was... Um, yeah, the start of a really busy period. So we came back from there and not long after that was um, Christchurch, mm. the earthquake in, in Christchurch and got the call to get to the uh, the base, which at the time was at Ingleburn and then we got on a bus. It was all pretty quick. We'd sort of refined it since Archer and a few of the other deployments and basically the uh, flatbed trucks that they normally transport fire engines on were all loaded up with the gear, the Keisha gear. We got a police escort from Highway Patrol, literally under lights out to Richmond Air Base. And we went over on a, a C1, two C-130s. We were, I was in the Alpha team, so we went first. We came back in a C-17 Globemaster, but they just wanted to get us over there quick. And um, when we arrived, a New Zealand Fire Service guy said, um, thanks for coming, basically unload the truck, there's work to do. And we, we honestly thought it was a bit of an Anzac moment most of the work would be done. There wouldn't be anyone trapped. And he said, mm. mate, there's, there's still like 50 or 60 people missing. Um, we drove into town and on the outskirts of town, you could see like brick veneer places with cracks all through them and things falling, you know, carports falling down. But as we got into the heart of Christchurch, there was buildings on fire with, um, you know, um, aerial appliances at work with major hose streams and People waving, still to, active fires. So, oh, absolutely! People, people. Uh, the the Canterbury TV building, which had about 50, 60 people in it, I think um, was well and truly on fire. Um, and that wasn't far from Latimer Square, where they'd set up the base of operations. Uh, yeah, people waving um, towels out of windows in hotels, saying the staircase has collapsed. And I remember driving through on the bus and could see with orange paint, spray paint on the road to the people up in the motels that said help is on the way so they at least had a message that had been acknowledged so it was all very still um really active um when, mm. when we arrived and we were my team were tasked with doing a, a recon of certain streets and um yeah so when we arrived we were told to do a recon and just find out where we thought the um our energy so our focus of effort should be and we came back, we had myself, an engineer and a, a paramedic, a SCAP paramedic who I'd worked with up here, Murray Trainer, and uh, who I knew through you know, yeah. local operations. Mars. Mars, yeah. So he was in the team. And we came back and basically they said, well, where do you think, you know, are there any buildings that need searching and that haven't been searched? And we just said everywhere, everywhere, because everything was collapsed. Everything had voids. Everything was... I think it was one thirty in the afternoon when the earth, so every, you know, that time of day, all those mm. buildings, malls, milk bars were all, all full. All full. Um, and they said there's lots and lots of people missing. And then after that, uh, they said you've got to replace the New Zealand USAR team, the local USAR team, on this building called the PGC or the Pine Gould Corporation building. <clears throat> there's at least 20 people missing in there. Um and then we got there and um, not long after, Simon Boda from Channel 9 was there. Um, he'd flown across to cover it for Channel 9 and 
he came up to me and said, mate, the camera, my sound man or cameraman, as Sean Welfare, his name was, has uh, heard someone singing out. So I'd just done the handover with the New Zealand team. Mm. And the New Zealand team said to me, the USAR um, team leader said, mate, there's at least 20 people confirmed missing in the building. Um, he said they got two or three live victims out. It was a big pancake collapse. So it was a you know, large office block, four or five stories had come down. Anyhow, not long after that, um, we ceased all operations, turned off cranes, turned off all the machinery, and sure enough, we could hear this woman singing out. She said, hello, my name's Anne. I'm trapped under my desk. I feel okay. And we went, crikey. So uh, the New Zealand team were literally about to fall over, but they've mm. been going since it started. So for the next four hours. How long had that been at that stage? Uh, that was about 20 hours. Yeah, right. Yeah, about 20 hours. Um, so it was a pretty quick response from Australia yeah. and New South Wales, and we knew Queensland was... Uh, on the way as well. Um, yeah, it was um, it was a big response. You know, they finished up being 800 USAR personnel from around the world there. Mm. Um, but yeah, so for four hours we worked to get this woman, Anne Bodkin, out of the collapse structure, which we didn't have all our technical USAR gear. We actually used road crash rescue gear off one of the New Zealand fire engines because our gear hadn't even been unpacked. Wow. They, they were setting up the base of operations. We were what? not waiting we're not going to wait for jackhammers and all the technical gear. We're going to get into this just using, you know, spreaders and shears and hacksaws. And so that's, and the guys being, you know, rescue operators, mm. uh, that was their bread and butter. So they, it took four hours to get her out. And uh, we got her on the end of an aerial appliance and lowered her to the ground. I think she finished up having a couple of cracked ribs and a bit of bruising. But yeah, they, wow. we caught, caught up with a Channel 9 did a 10-year reunion with Simon Boder and um, we had a chat to her and she's lived life to right. the full and yeah which was really quite emotional actually to, you don't to, often hear that yeah, sort of yeah. post <laughs> I think because Simon was actually there yeah he had, okay. he had skin in the game and felt quite he was quite uh, moved by the and whole thing as well and connected yeah. to it so that's why he did the the 10 year sort of yeah you never do a reunion from no. people that you rescue so um yeah, and then for the sadly that was the last live victim we searched and searched, and um, um, we handed over a couple of days after to the uh, British team who had arrived because mm -hmm. we were pretty tired by then. Yeah, still we were still going and doing searches in other buildings, but it was really heavy duty, uh, um, lem delaminating the the building with mm. <clears throat> um, looking for people, and sadly there were they found twenty people um, in in that building that had been you know, hit by, hit by the, uh, by the earthquake and didn't make it, which was pretty, but so the intel that we got when we got there from the cops was spot it's on. pretty right. Pretty yeah. right. Yeah. Yep. But luckily, so Anne Bodkin was the last live victim to be, to be rescued mm. in, uh, so probably the best and best and worst day of my career, I reckon that, that, yeah. you know, all that training comes off the team that, and I trained a lot of the team that. We're doing the rescue, so it goes to show that if you don't train properly, if you don't, you know, if you tick people off and give them a tick in the box and say, oh, they'll be right, and then you get hit by something like that, it was really, yeah. I mean, the fruits of your labour have paid off, but... Um, I was going to say, this, yeah. is a, this is probably a bit of a different experience for you than Bandarache, because it was probably a different type of mm, totally, role, totally. whereas this was actually in your technical niche it of was. expertise. Yeah, absolutely. It, and, was um, what, it was what we trained for, it's what we do. But I never really thought we'd do it to that scale yeah, because right. days and days after that, we were clearing buildings and they were abseiling down lift shafts that had collapsed to get into, you know, swinging yeah, into the really? door. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was, um, 
how did you manage the aftershock risk doing those sort of activities? Um, it was it was scary to be honest. It was really yeah, a couple right. of times I thought we weren't going to make it. To be honest, uh, we were deep inside in, buildings. Yeah, deep inside buildings, tunneling in through filing cabinets and like the, we're talking about um, probably three hundred mil, just just enough to scrape your helmet through, you know, and and going past people that were squashed and deceased, which was quite confronting to see if there was people that were like savable, savable, yeah. like Anne yeah. Bodkin. Luckily, she got under a desk, um, and. Um, and survive. So we knew that really urged us on to try and think, well, if we found one, you yeah. know, they talk about this 100 hours, which is pretty true of survivability. So we were working like dogs to try and, you know, day in, day out, yeah. and the night shift to come in and then we'd come back in the morning and, yeah, to try and see if we could rescue anyone that was alive. But sadly, they were all, um, they were all deceased and the, the, U uh, the um, UK team, uh, did the with the cops did the retrieval? We we sadly had to remove some people uh, to burrow through. Yeah, you know, they were lying in in, in the road. In the road, yeah. so we actually had yeah. to remove them. Um, but yeah, so it, it was. Um, so you were yeah. a team leader. Yeah, I was there. the team leader. So Alpha. How, I'm just interested your mindset at the time. Like you're committing people, like your team, to go through into that environment where you actually there is no way of knowing mm. whether an aftershock's going to happen and how strong it's going to be and you you're, yeah. you're putting people into that place yep. like how did you how did you how well did you, i thought we'd mitigate it by <clears throat> they do it in training by putting pigsty cribbing like you know blocks yeah, right. blocks of timber in but of course the shakes were that big a lot most of the time the pigsty cribbing and everything had come down all down because things were moving big elements yep. were moving and um i'll be up front that i thought if if it does come down, I hope I don't make it because I don't want to have to tell, face the music or tell the partners or, you know, um, confront the partners of the people that didn't make it. So I thought if... From if, a decision you'd made. From a decision I'd made, yeah. an operational decision. It was, a, it was a tough gig to... And you've turned up to be the rescue team and you can't say to the people, well, we're not going in because it's too dangerous. They, they, you know, the, the families were standing out the front... With photos. Pleading with you. Flowers. Yeah. Flowers of their, you know, go and get in there and help. you got to find my wife. You know, I'm ringing the phone and she won't answer. I know why she wasn't answering the phone because yeah. she was dead, you know, but it was a tough gig to wow. <clears throat> to go in there and commit your crew. We had a team that of emotion, nine. That, oh, it's that, tough that emotional attachment at jobs like that is mm. certainly a, a motivator to do. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I know that on a micro scale compared mm. to that, but uh, yeah. That's it was a, really it's, tough it's big to... To say, well, we were never going to say it. We we're never going to say to the people, we've come all the way from Australia, but now we're not going to go in. Yeah. But it, it was really emotional to the point where I I honestly thought we we could um, not get out. You know, that, that was, yeah, yeah, yeah. That it was, it was a really, like seeing those people there with the photos of their loved ones to try, which was spurring us on. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, holding roses and things and, you know, Saying that this is the, this is the last yeah. ditch sort of thing, you know, that last ditch our last effort, yeah. our last hope. Um, so, you know, it's, I suppose this is what you sign up for. This is what you do, but you never realise when you say that um, that you mightn't come back that night. You know, it was mm. it was there was concrete coming down, and I remember bits of Rio after the the, the shaking. You know, I remember bits of Rio hitting my helmet. Um, so that's how far. 
the, the bits and pieces were moving. Plus, while you're in squeezing in between yeah, concrete, yeah, 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 you know, and there was a leg cord in the, and it's that famous story of the guy that got amputated. Uh, the doctor amputated the leg with a pen knife and the leg's still sitting in the crack in the steps in the building, the internal staircase. He was coming down. The earthquake had opened up like a big clam and came back in and that's that doctor who was over there in a conference, um, amputated his leg um, with a pocket knife and you could see the fire hose, the, the hose reel, they'd actually un, unreeled it and um, and almost, not a bowline, but just a couple of knots and someone was hanging off that near that um, amputation site as a like a top belay, but they were doing it off a hose reel to try and have something to support them. So, you know, and there was people, deceased people hanging out the, uh, you know, through the through the lay, you know, where the um, buildings had, the, the actual layers or the floors had come down. So there was, mm. it was quite graphic. You know, there was a lot of people squashed and, um, mm. you know, people that had been alive with airways still in and, and drips and things coming out of their arms. So they'd try, the ambos had tried to, Save them, but obviously in the, situ, in thing, situ. Yeah. Uh, but they'd obviously, due to the mm. magnitude of the trauma, didn't make it. So, all that was around you. Plus, you were uh, looking for any live victim. We were also using trap person locating, you know, yep. seismic and acoustic sensors. We did pick up um, myself and uh, one other team, uh, Anthony Walgate. Um, yeah, picked up through the headphones. Someone tapping. Tap if you can hear if rescue team above and we could hear this tap, 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 tap. And it went on for a while. And sadly, a day or two later, the uh, the British team found this uh, female right in the spot. We told them where it was and they said she didn't look overly injured. So that was probably right. her tapping. But I'd say she had either, you know, major thoracic injuries or something or bled out. Mm. Um, and, and, and to get to her was a major... It's days major, later. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, days later. It was, it was literally... Uh, a really difficult rescue side, but um, yeah, confronting. Uh, it's really emotional, you know, gut wrenching. But at the end of the day, you know, we did get a we did release a, a live victim mm. who's had ten years, and and hopefully another ten years of yeah. her life. So it's as I said, best best result uh, as far as a professional sighting, but probably the worst day of my career, even more than Archie thinking that any one of the team. Because we kept ro rotated the yep. team, so we didn't have the whole lot in there. Um, so if someone did get trapped, that we'd have other rescuers to come in to rescue as the a, rescuers. As a response team, like yeah. a like a um, you know an on deck team or a, <clears throat> a rapid intervention team. So yeah, pretty pretty. I think I'd finished up doing close to forty hours from the time I'd left home to the time I crawled into tent that night. You know, it was um, <laughs> it was a yeah, it was um, fairly tiring. And then from there, it was. Every day was a big day when we were clearing buildings and... How long were you over there in total? Again, about 12, 14 days, I okay. think. Yeah, yeah. yeah they right. usually, they usually, because of the um, the fatigue factor, both physically, mentally and everything, they try to keep it to about, you know, 10 to 14 days. Yeah. Um, but of course the food in, in uh, we started off the <clears throat> first few days on ration packs, but yep. of course then they, uh, they set up barbecues and things like that. Right. So we had a lot of... I don't know what you'd call it, more, more of a, a reasonable diet than, than just living off ration packs, yeah. uh, which was good because when you're working hard, both mentally <laughs> and physically, it's good to have that good tucker. Decent food. So, uh, yeah, another, you know, another really interesting but challenging part of my career. Really. Mm. Mm. I don't doubt it. And I, like, I, I, I can't imagine what it's like in front of the family members mm. standing there holding those sort of, th those sort of uh, items 
Yeah, you know, just look, looking at you as their only chance. Mm. Yeah. Oh, a lot of pressure. Yeah. A lot of pressure. And the other thing is they'd been there when the New Zealand team had got people out that night and early in the morning. Right. So when we arrived, they, they were li uh, literally um, bringing down lady probably in her mid-50s with a handbag who they'd rescued, who right. had a bit of blood, looked like she'd, you know, knocked her head on a filing cabinet. But so the hope was through the roof. They they all thought yeah. they're going to get down into these bubbles and find their loved ones and they're just going to keep leading them out. But sadly, Anne Bodkin, the one we rescued, was the last. So I can understand why their hope was so high yeah. because they'd actually that night seen three people um, and the New Zealand Fires had got a um, turntable ladder or a skyjet type aerial appliance when it, just after it happened and, and quite a few people who in staircases and things did get rescued. Yep. Yep. So the hopes were fairly high, but sadly um, um, the, the ones that were standing there with the photos and the flowers and stuff um, weren't weren't to be told good news. It was yeah. very, um, yeah, very yeah. – and I said to the cops, I think it would be a really good idea to move the people on at least into a, a car park or something. And he said mm. they didn't have the resources to to do that. There was right. only like two, two or three cops there. And uh, <clears throat> he said, "Why? Whilst they're where they are, we've sort of got them corralled. Yeah, so okay. a day or two later, when reinforcements came, they did move them on. But it was a really confronting thing to deal with, and the pressure yeah. to, to, yeah, from my perspective as the team leader, to get in there and find their loved ones in really marginal austere condition. You know, with the the risk, the risk of that building coming down or squashing mm. a fire, he was." Pretty high, um, so yeah, it was, it was um, something that I wouldn't want to go through again. But mm. at the same time, it was rewarding rescuing someone in such, you know, perilous yeah. conditions. Yeah. So uh, after your time over over there, coming home again, what was that like? Yeah, I didn't think a bit like Archer. I didn't think I was doing too bad until my wife dropped the plate on the kitchen floor. Um, and it cracked and smashed, and I, I went, wow. It was because when there's an aftershock, there's all these noises and things come crashing down, and I thought, oh, Jesus, I'm, you know, I'm a little bit shaken, literally, by this. And hmm. then a day or two later, we went to uh, uh, the shopping centre and um, drove into a multi-level multi, multi concrete car park, and I just said, well, I've got to get out of here. Because we'd searched a lot of car parks, and there was people deceased in cars where... The, the, you know, the various floors and stuff mm. had come down and uh, I literally, I said, you can go to your shop and I'm going to wait outside. <clears throat> I just couldn't stand. I felt like a vice was coming on me. And right. I really didn't think when I woke up that morning they had any any issues at all. But um, obviously, you know, the, the mind's a fairly powerful thing. Mm. It did dissipate after a few months. I uh, I still went back to work and everything. But, um, yeah, those little triggers like... Um, I said, like car parks or if something rattled or something fell, uh, it would really put the wind up you mm. because you were so hyper vigilant and your state of awareness was incredibly high. But it, it did dissipate after a while, and I kept on the riding the horse and back doing USAR courses, you know, teaching, instructing USAR courses, and going on exercises and overseas. Uh, by that stage, I was more looking at um, instructing, and obviously, I was still on the team, but then. Mm. In later years, um, when I became an inspector and then super, went into the incident management side of USAR and had done yep. the coordination course with the UN. And so I actually was um, more in the command tent then, yep. but yep. but did did a, 
a lot of stuff um, still in the USAR arena and lectured in um, in Hong Kong to the Hong Kong Fire and Ambulance Service over right. there. Um, another trip overseas. Another trip overseas. <laughs> went to an earthquake exercise uh, in Mongolia. Went to um, in Mongolia. Mongolia. Yep. Um, Asia Pacific earthquake wow. exercise, which was just amazing. Um, and went to what did Oman. the admin staff say when you put in that? Little <laughs> thing. Where's my ticket? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I could imagine that one. <laughs> um, and Oman in the Middle East for a um, uh, a USA United Nations classification. I was just an observer at that. Right. That's just before New South Wales did their uh, classification. And a uh, major exercise in the US called Earthquake Exercise called Exercise Shaken Fury, where we went from uh, Sydney to uh, – sorry, from Amberley to Hawaii, then into uh, – Ohio, and I was the deputy task force leader. We got out of this right. C-130, loaded all the gear in Chinooks, US Chinooks, and flew in in Chinooks, uh, <laughs> and then did a recce in a, in a Black Hawk. They took us up in a Black Hawk for a spin. Um, so, you know, as wow. much as it's really confronting uh, USAR and disaster assistance response stuff, yeah, there is some pretty cool stuff you do as well. Yeah. And then yeah. home, we flew back in the Chinooks, got off the Chinooks, loaded the the, the star uh, – the, uh, Globemaster and and then back to Hawaii and and back home. So tough gig, that tough one. gig, tough gig. <laughs> you deserve yeah, it though. Yeah. So there's been a lot of really good in the exercise and training yeah. arena. Some that, great. On that thing. note, like obviously the the capability and equipment shift from basically when you went over to to Indonesia compared to going to Christchurch. What did you sort of? What was the, yeah, what the was coordination's the so much better now. Um, right. The the I suppose with the UN um, and obviously in the in in America, um, they're under the theme. Basically, there are only two UN teams in in deployable teams in the US, but they're under that FEMA model. Whereas the rest of the world is under the United Nations model, and of course, hence New South Wales yep. and uh, and Queensland. So you've got structure. You've got um, Command and control. Yeah. Uh, it's it's probably one of, apart from the equipment, things like um, you know the trap person locators, the Delsars, and that sort of stuff. The actual high end equipment, um, cameras, and there's a lot of that that's really changed the the whole game. But the biggest thing I reckon is the communications, the command and control, the actual structure that they use um, yeah. has made it safer, probably. Um, the situational awareness of where teams are, how they set up a um, reception departure centre at the airport, um, the coordination cells. So everything now has real a bit like my early intro about where my fire and rescue career's gone. It's really expanded now to be a really professional outfit that's coordinated. It's come a long way from a uh, woolen jacket with brass yeah, buttons. Yeah, and a Second World War. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a Blitzwagon. You know, Blitz, Blitzwagon, yeah, yeah. <laughs> GMC, yeah, Blitz sort of thing. So it's, you know, 40 odd years, you see a lot of change. Mm. Um, and obviously that's to allow people, I suppose, to be saved, to be rescued, whether it's firefighting, hazmat, whether it's disaster, USAR. Mm. We have come a long way. There's still a lot of room, I think, particularly in the mental health space where you know, returning teams, things like that, and even preparing, not only when you return, there's a lot which I believe not only Fire Rescue but the other agencies in Australia and around the world can do to better prepare people um, for, for what they go through, mm -hmm. you know, what they've seen, what they go through and what 
what they have to deal with when they come back. Uh, there's a lot of improvement. We, we're getting there slowly, but um, I think, and I think now the fire rescue's got about ten or more uh, full-time staff. When I went away, there was probably in those, particularly at Archer, there was probably one. Mm. So you know, it is expanding, but it needs to be a lot better because, as you, as you know, as an ex-police rescue operator and a um, uh, a copper as well, uh, fire whoever you get to to deal with some fairly gnarly things, mm. and um, it's it's something that we all, like me, when I gave those examples, um, have to deal with, even though we don't know it's it's there, mm. it's it can sneak up on you, and I think we really need to do a lot better to look after. I remember he's a mate of mine, he's assistant commissioner, he was actually in New Zealand, ex rescue operator at Blacktown. Um, and now an assistant commissioner with Fire Rescue, he said there's three things you've got to remember, Bruce. It's all about the people, the people and the people. And I agree with him, but mm. gov- governments and agencies have to adopt that and not just have the bull- the bullshit to, to say yep. we've got a system in place. We have to be looking yeah. after our people. A great our policy people, and an e-learning people. package that nobody uh, really yep. pays any attention is, to is not cutting it. No, yeah. it's not. It's not. And I've lived it. Yep. I've been there. I've seen it. Luckily, yep. I got through... The other side, and I think I've got through through bushwalking, mm. climbing. Uh, I paint landscape. Pictures. I want to talk. I want to talk about yeah. that now, but um, yeah. I do just on that note, actually, and just as a personal sort of thanks, I guess to um, to yourself, not only for coming here and talking to me, because um, you know we our our professional connection goes a long way, way back, back mm. and and um, uh, but I I knew you'd understand when I <laughs> when I asked you to come down out of the mountains for this. Uh, mobile, although mm. this is a mobile recording studio, uh, and I was certainly more than able to come up and meet you. Uh, I'm I'm not up to going into the mountains mm. at the moment, mm. and, I, and I'm doing work on trying to get back there. But um, yeah, mm. I, I yeah, where I'm at now, uh, it's not mm. an option for me, unfortunately. And I, I certainly get it. And uh, you know, I've got a lot of work to do, and the the system's got a lot of work to do. And mm. and uh, <laughs> yeah, I completely understand that. But that's actually leading off that is why I wanted to talk to you, you know, straight up when, when this whole thing started coming together was because I, I know your external pursuits and, and your life balances are uh, unusually uh, well-developed, you know, like I, I know what you get up to and I've always said to you, I'm sure you've got ADHD and I don't <laughs> know when you sleep, but um, you know, what you do outside of work is just as impressive as your work careers. So as you said, you know, painting, you know, uh, an accomplished author and historian, rock climbing, mountain biking, you know, there's, there's so much that you do and not just tokenistically do, you do mm. it full on mm. and, and, and do it well. And uh, yeah, so just tell us a bit about, tell us a bit about how you've managed yourself with all of that sort of amazing career achievements that are obviously really seriously taxing on you as a person. How have you actually balanced that? Yeah, good question. I, I used to climb, or oh, I still do climb for enjoyment or get out in the bush or I do a lot of long solo bushwalking out in the, into, you know, the Wild Dog Mountains, Canangra, wherever it that's is. Actually, you know, what? just before, before yeah. you go on, actually, that's when I, uh, I realised, I remember going back through an old hand, no, it wasn't hand drawn, but it was uh, it was an old guidebook, climbing guidebook of an area that I hadn't been to, and someone gave me a photocopy of a photocopy, mm. and I'm flicking through this thing trying to find a route to do, and there it is. There's your name, 
again. And I'm like, God, oh, Bruce, you're everywhere. <laughs> oh, I like to get around a bit. But I, fa- I found those early years, you know, it was for enjoyment and, you know, um, obviously a bit of a – I was taken by climbing because of the – you're just in that moment, you're in that space. And particularly like solo bushwalking and yep. setting up a one-man tent. So I really enjoyed all that. But I found as – particularly when I got more involved in rescue and those days at Blacktown, <clears throat> I had to – have a circuit breaker because it was it was tough. You were always doing lots of, as I said, fairly difficult motor vehicle rescues and people trapped in machinery. And I'd come home, and you, as you know, you just think about yeah. it. You just you just can't get those things out of your mind. So it's I, hard to go from that and then drive yep. forty minutes and get home and then sit down to dinner. And <laughs> yeah, or well, I remember days at Blacktown. I'd, I'd get in my car. That was the old 10, 14, 10 hour day, fourteen hour nights. Yeah, and I remember after fourteen hour night shift once, I got not far from the motorway and I was driving along and in my car, um, I got to a red light and I was, I remember looking saying I can jump the curb there and I'll go and I, then I went, oh crikey, I'm in my own car. <laughs> I kept thinking because I'd yeah, been driving heavy risky. I still, yeah. and I went, whoa, but it was just how hard, you know, how wide yeah. you were at the time. And I th- basically knew I'd be in a bucket if I didn't do something as a circuit breaker. So then I, I went climbing and mountain biking and all those sorts of things and in the bush as a way of sort of severing the ties to the mm. shifts that I've just been through. And, you know, I did an owner builder of my house and I used, as I said, paint landscape pictures. And I, I did all those things, I think, because there was no real, and no one really talked about it back then. There was no help about how do you get through those moments. And I suppose I took it upon myself that I felt really good when I went into the bush, I, I um, when you're climbing um, and not sport climbing, you do like traditional mm. climbing, putting in your own gear and things like that and developing a lot of new routes and you've just got to concentrate and you're in that space. And I found mm. after a day out, you, you almost felt flushed and refreshed and, mm. you know, you might come home and have a beer or a glass of wine, but I wasn't relying on grog as, as the mechanism to cope, mm. which is good. You know, I might come home and have dinner and a couple of beers. That's and go, good because it's unusual. Yeah, yeah it is. It yeah. is. It is. Yeah. And I still like a beer and a wine, don't get me wrong. But I've, I didn't want to rely on on grog to be my saviour. I, mm. I enjoyed a cold couple of cold beers, maybe a six-pack, but <laughs> but it wasn't, it wasn't the thing that I relied on. It was getting out in the bush and being active and mm. just keeping my mind really, um, really – fresh and ready for the next set of shifts. And then when I went on, you know, even through as a um, inspector and then as through to a super superintendent, I, I could rely on that past experience, like all that, the deployments, the the exercises. And I really f- thought it was incumbent upon me to then share that with other people mm. so they could, um, so they could learn from that, again, that shared experience. And to their credit, uh, Fire Rescue um, have got a, a program called the USAR Pioneers and they, they get a few of the older guys in, retired guys. Uh, I've done a few of them where they actually talk to the the graduating USAR class. Really? Which is, yeah, which has got the uh, paramedics and stuff <clears throat> in there as well and the, dog, the police dog handler, so it's the whole spectrum and we go through – what it's like to deploy, what we've experienced in the past. Uh, to me, yeah. that's a, a step uh, in the right bringing direction. Bringing that lived experience back to yeah. the, the And it also, the yeah. mental health stuff too, that yeah. pe- people are, you know, I always say to them that um, when that phone rings and someone says, report 
to the staging area. You're, mm. de- you're deploying to Indonesia or you're going to New Zealand and uh, make sure, you know, you've got your, your kit bag that's supplied and your uniform. You say you're off for two weeks. I said the mm. feeling that that provides, or, the, or the, it's almost like an electric shock to think, crikey, it's, you know, the balloon's gone up and we're actually going to mm. deploy. And I've done it quite a few times now, as I said, and um, it's it's really good that they can hear it from, as you said, lived experience. Mm. Mm. So you're, uh, you mentioned your landscape paintings. Uh, I know we had a quick chat um, today about coming home from Arche and the art exhibition. Yeah, well I, well, I certainly didn't do it to make money. I do sell my paintings, but this was nothing. It was just I went in my studio and had a, a few digital photos and I started looking at them and I thought, oh, I want to paint that. I don't even know why. I just started to paint pictures of of Arche. Mm. And uh, in the end, I did about 10 pictures and I thought, what well, I'm going to probably throw them away or give them away and only the people that had deployed would really see um, would, anything in it understand or understand it. it. Yeah. And, but I just really wanted to put paint on the canvas. And uh, one of the doctor's wives who we um, deployed with, she wrote a book called Angels of Arche, which is a, a basically the story of the deployment. And she was launching the book in Sydney, in North Sydney. And Who, what was her name? Her name is uh, Sophie York. Right. Sophie York, yeah, it's called Angels of Arche. It's the, the, the deployment um, story. And I st- contacted her and said, but she'd interviewed me for, this, for the book and got a few photos from me. And I said, I've done all these paintings. Do you think we should hang them up um, at the book launch to sort of, oh, yeah. you know, as, as an, an addition to it? She said, oh, that'd be wonderful. And of course I did and didn't put price tags or anything on because I just thought they would be there as a bit of, <clears throat> you know, bit of a overview of rather than have a digital photo, they yeah. were paintings. And within half an hour, they'd all been sold because all the guys that had deployed said, oh, that really, I really, even though, you know, it's the coastline that's been ripped apart, I really can relate to it. And another guy was uh, ex-military uh, army doctor. He'd served in Vietnam and he said, I've always wanted a picture of a, of a Huey, of a helicopter that, you know, was landed in almost like a uh, delivering supplies into a cane field and mm. uh, in Arche. So I think probably all bar one had sold in half an hour. And I said, oh, give oh. me, basically give me some money for the, for the frame. But yeah, because yeah. they are all, most of them were doctors, they had plenty of loot. So they said, <laughs> you know, you take 500. You missed your <laughs> opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> so I, did, I didn't feel good. I, I, um, I didn't do it. So it really paid for the, the frame and the materials yeah. and stuff. And obviously didn't do it to make money, but it was very cathartic and therapeutic, but it's, um, I didn't do the same after New Zealand. I, I felt quite um, different after New Zealand. But, um, yeah, it was funny from that Arche deployment. I came home within a couple of weeks, just, just wanted to, to do something, I think, to... Get it out in paint. Yeah, get it out yeah. in paint. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So how many years all up did you end up doing? In the fire brigade, uh, 42. 42. 42, so, yeah. yeah just I, just, I, just, I just have to let you know, 1980... I was in kindergarten. Wow. There you go. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, is that yeah. right? Yeah, I yeah. think it is. Yeah. 80. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I was in kindy. Yeah. <laughs> well, as I said, I started. Then I ended time. up working with you. Yeah, so ended anyway, up working. There you go. Yeah, yeah, 18 and then went in at 21. So three and a half years in in the retained or on call yeah. and then 21 years old into into the permanent brigade and then work my way up from really from retained firefighter to, super, yeah, to superintendent. superintendent that's yeah. impressive yeah, yeah so it's like i've been a fairly but i think so is the best rank in the in the job being an so right. 
at a busy rescue station with a good cruise as good as it gets. That's yeah. really it was great days. You know, like the sergeant level in the cops, cops. like the shift supervisor. Yep. I've got a few portfolio responsibilities. Yeah, you can make a difference. You really can yeah. make a difference. Um, as a superintendent, you can make a difference as well. But you're very budget focused and, yeah. and bigger, oh, yeah. bigger big, picture strategic big, stuff, which issue. was good. Different and I issues. made some changes there when I was there, which was good. Yeah. Um, ruffled a few feathers, but you, you don't get any, you can't make a cake without cracking an egg, but no, we're in, in a nice way. Yeah. But, um, you know, we've got a new rescue course up and running and, and some other things. So yeah, yeah, it's that's, a, a, that's long, a long list of achievements. I mean, mm. I like we've, we've been talking now for well over an hour and you know, that we could go for another two hours to get through this, <laughs> oh, this bio Bruce, but, oh. um, you know, like some amazing experiences that you've had and, and the service that you've had, uh, you know, as you said, like you, you're literally saving lives. You, you, you go into other people's countries. You're not even, mm. you're not even serving your local community and still doing that work. And it's, that's an amazing thing within itself, but your mm. retirement, uh, day or, or your, your, your four official, months now. <laughs> yeah. Is it four months ago? Is it? Four could, months you, could you describe that day when you, when you had your service in Sydney? Yeah, it was pretty. I went with a, a guy who actually started. He was a chief super, um, Ken Murphy. He he also uh, was going on the same day, and the assistant commissioner of our regional operations. Uh, he he also retired on that same day. Uh, Rob McNeil and they said come in for a barbecue, and I thought it was just going to be a barbecue. But when we got in there, um, there was police and ambos and RFS senior officers, and next minute they talked about. Um, shutting down Castle Ray Street and Pitt Street and this street, Elizabeth, anyhow, I thought, crikey. And they put us on an old antique fire engine and we did a uh, a lap around the block, but the street was just lined with fireys. It was quite emotional, wow. actually. I didn't yeah, have a tear in my eye, but a bit lump in my throat. Because as I, we came out of from the city of Sydney fire station, I didn't realise how many people were there. And, right. you know, the whole street was locked down and they had the old siren going on the on the old fire, you know, like a yeah. old Dennis Ace or whatever it was. And, um, yeah, it was sitting on the side of it. But it brought back memories because that first fire engine at Glenbrook was like that. Yeah, that's what it. I was just thinking. Yeah, yeah I remember had, you had the side it. seats, the Braidwood body. And uh, so I thought I'd I'd started sitting on the side of a fire engine and um, <laughs> in the open and finished yeah. on the end of the open. And It wasn't raining and cold. <clears> no, it wasn't raining and cold. <laughs> and then I drove back to the Emergency Services Academy to drop off my car, which was reasonably late and probably six o'clock at night and yeah. there was no one there and um, I'd arranged to leave the car keys on my desk and I went upstairs. My wife came and picked me up and um, drove out the gate and uh, and that was it. So it was a nice way to finish a career and I did have a send off with a couple of other guys that had been through the USAR disaster sort of area with, yep. um, we had a, a send off which was nice but that was more, you know, catching up with people, having a few beers but the, 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 um, march out, as they call it, at City of Sydney was, yeah, quite a proud moment and a, cul mm. a culmination of 42 years in the job and, and um, yeah, very, very special something I won't forget. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, uh, you don't mm. see that too often. Well, uh, to close city, the streets city, down. City streets getting, getting shut, shut down. down. Yeah. yeah. It was quite, and it was good that the the people, those, um, Rob McNeil and Ken Murphy, and I said, Ken Murphy and I walked into the um, college together on the same day in 1984. Is so, that right? Yeah, and left on the same day. Yeah, yeah. You're joking. No, wow. No, yeah, Ken's gone to the SES as a senior commander. Yeah, I saw there. him on TV. Yeah, yeah. for a couple of, just, yeah. just to, out of interest, he said, keep, yeah. to keep busy. So, that yeah, it was a really special moment and something I didn't really see coming on the day. I thought they might, you know, 
line up in the engine bay. Those rats tricked you one last time. Yeah, one last time. <laughs> but it, yeah, it was quite poignant that I started sitting on the side of a fire engine and finished sitting that on the side. That is so of, cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's it. that's, that is cool. Yep. Yeah. So with you, like doing that many years in the organisation on the way out, uh, you would have seen a lot of change. How does, how does that go passing that on? I guess, you know, how do you feel? Yeah, it feel, you feel a little bit useless in a way because you, one day you're there as superintendent, next day you're no one. Uh, as in, as in you've got all this information, you've got all this lived experience. Mm. Um, and it's, yeah, you just go stone cold because you you don't apart from mm. a few fireys and friends or guys like you that have been in the emergency services and don't, can understand it, or even like recruits who come into the academy now, um, you know, you've got people teaching them that have been in the job four years, you know, they yeah. don't, rather than <laughs> four, 40 years. So you feel like you've still got a lot to offer, but you've got to, I suppose, draw a line in the sand and say, um, my day's done. I'll, I'll probably be invited back to do the USAR Pioneer Talk, which is yep. a nice thing. Uh, yep. And that that's where my my passion was. But, um, yeah, it feels weird that mm. you, you were there for decades and decades and decades and then you walk away and uh, you're really starting a new life. I mean, I've got a lot to do. I've never been bored. I haven't really regretted at all <laughs> because there's so many things I want yeah. to do. You couldn't have fit much more <clears throat> in, Bruce, no. I can tell you that. <laughs> no, so it's um, – it's it's been really fulfilling. There was probably mm. three, four, five, maybe five percent of things that really irked me, like the lack of discipline in in the youth today. Yeah. I'm sure thirty years ago they said the same thing, but you know, recruits calling officers mate and not having to stand for the commissioner anymore. There's things that really irk me, which I think we need to bring back. Yep. We need to have that level of discipline and respect. Uh, but that's the new age fire and rescue. The new age cops are the same. Yeah. Uh, every or you know, it's a I reckon it's even the military guys whinge mi- about the same sort of yeah, stuff. I think. Yeah, my son's an officer in the navy, and he you know, he, he talks to the old crusty sea dogs, and he said it's a, you know it's a Sunday school picnic now compared to. I'm not talking about bastardisation or yeah, yeah, yeah. things like that, but there just has to be a level of respect, and that's one thing I I sort of when I left thought if I stayed any longer I might get grumpy about, so I mm. didn't want to do that. But generally, I had a really good career, mm. but there are lots of things that if they listened, I think the guys that have been around a bit could, could uh, you know, advise them of and mm. they could they could actually materialise into real benefits for the organisation. But mm. um, they probably think you're a, a has-been. Not, not saying I was treated like one, but mm. I think, um, you know, like Aboriginal culture, there's a real learning there, storytelling, and it's a very powerful mm. uh, and important thing. And it's something because you're a state government worker that they just think, right, you're in one door and out the other, mm. rather than having that connectivity, uh, even though you're retired, I think they could learn a lot from people that have, you know, and as you said, had a fairly interesting career and I think mm. there's still a lot to offer. Um, and um, I bet your, should, your exit checklist would have been a big long one with your interview. Uh, I didn't have one. They didn't, uh, they didn't, yeah, no, Fire Rescue have stopped doing, <laughs> they've stopped doing... Uh, Exit interviews, which is all you do is sign off your phone and your laptop and you walk out the door, which is a little, a little bit uh, disheartening. Um, yeah, really? I did uh, I did get on to the assistant commissioner who's a mate of mine, um, another one, uh, who was in continuous improvement. And I said, I really, this is a week or so after I left, I, I said, I can't believe. And a lot of my mates who were superintendents, inspectors and stuff said the same thing. 
that they didn't get the opportunity to have. Yeah, no, you get a exit interview flipping burgers at McDonald's when you're 16, but not after 42 years, which is, is it's, it's one That's, thing that the organisation yeah. needs to fix. And now I've retired, I can say it. Um, yeah, very disappointing that they they treat you like that and also that they don't listen. Yeah, but they don't, um, yeah, they don't take on board what... The good stuff. What, yeah, yeah, the good the, stuff. The good and the bad that you, mm, could, you could offer mm. up on the way out when you are free to talk. Yeah. Because yep. on your last day, I guess you got... There's no, there's nothing to lose. No, there's not. You can and speak it's not, it's not as though it'd all be derogatory or bad. It wouldn't be. There's a few points, as I said, like the discipline and and yeah. uh, things like that, which I I think they should look at. But also lots of re, uh, good initiatives that um, can be reinforced as they're can on be the re- right track. reinforced, and yep. particularly after you've had a bit of reflection time, mm. like it's probably a good thing to do a month after you you retire because then you've had time to think about it and time to and, and the mental health stuff. Um, yeah. Is another thing I can see that really needs mm. um, not 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 um, trying to think of the word. It, it needs realignment or recalibration. It's it's still not as good as it could be, mm. uh, and it's something that I'm I'm really passionate. And hence why I said I'd be happy to talk to you because yeah. it's it's part of something that um, I've been through, uh, and I believe we can really. And when we talk about continuous improvement, again, just don't have it as a department. Unless you're producing continuous improvement, where well, you're not really reaching your goals. <laughs> no, and um, I, I made that quite clear when I spoke to the assistant commissioner in charge of that section. And the fact that I was off duty, he'd left the yeah. retired, I'd still yep. sent him an email saying I feel pretty strongly about this. And uh, he said, I'll see what we can do, but I haven't heard anything back. We'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's so. uh, just bizarre to let 40, you know, 40 plus years walk out the door without saying, hey, how did we go? Yeah, if you work for Coca-Cola yeah. or someone, they'd, you know, and you'd been there as a production manager for they'd want to 40, know. they'd want to pick your brains. Yeah. But uh, I don't know why yeah, that's they might see it as a time what? constraint or that, um, mm. yeah, I honestly don't know why, but it's something they need to look at. So, yeah, your exit interview is well, hopefully, you, hopefully you, this little platform might um, spark yeah, maybe. a few interesting comments. So, um and, and what you were saying a little minute ago made me think of what we spoke about when you came into this van. The van's called Dolly, actually. Oh, it, Dolly. Old, it's a 1968, I think, um, Franklin caravan. That's mm. uh, certainly 1968 on the outside mm. and got 2022 Technology. tech <laughs> in the inside. But, um, mm. yeah, the, it's lined with uh, curtains for the, for the listeners Inside of the van's line, not only with soundproofing stuff, obviously, but um, the, the curtains have got black cockatoos on them. And uh, my understanding is the black cockatoo is the, the messenger bird. It's understood mm. to have always been the messenger bird. So, um, yeah, thanks to uh, yeah, thanks to my wife and my mum. Uh, mm. <laughs> wife chose, mum sewed. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's, it's lined with the messenger bird. So hopefully that uh, comes through. But anyway, look. Bruce, we've been talking for a long time, and I, I really appreciate it. Um, I remember originally when I made contact with you with this ball brain idea of mine, I was 100% sure you were going to say, yeah, cool, that's fine, but uh, yeah, I don't do that sort of thing. But um, <laughs> I'm really, really appreciative, of, and I'm sure everyone else that's listening would, um, certainly if they're still listening to this point, would uh, it definitely echo the, that appreciation for you being so open about uh, not only your achievements, but the, you know, the the real toll that takes, um, mm. and that leads us to this point. So, in the in the theme of a hot debrief, I'd like to ask you those three questions of what you did well, or what you think you you got right, 
in your career, and I'm not talking about the the you know the technical aspects of any individual job, but overall as a career and a person and uh, your external pursuits included, what do you think you got right? What do you think you got wrong? And if you had your time over again, what do you reckon you might do differently? I think what I did right was choosing fire and rescue as a career when I was advised that, listen, you've applied, you got in, forget your apprenticeship, take it. Yep. That was that was the start of something I did right because it led to a, a really good career. I think the other thing is being at busy fire stations uh, and being involved was, was good. Um, was there are, actively uh, chasing yeah, that position. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Whereas you could um, go to a an out you know outpost sort of thing, which is mm. a bit quieter. But you don't learn, you don't add benefit to the community. Um, and I think that was a really good choice. Always being like Western Sydney was known as, and it mm. still is. It's yeah. a lot busier than you know south or north or wherever. And um, I got a lot of personal satisfaction out of uh, what I did there. What I did wrong, not so much wrong, but what, what uh, some of the things, particularly since I've retired, I've looked back, is I probably gave too much to the job. It's, I, I at times probably was you too... Know, life balance or yeah, family yeah, balance? Yeah, or? yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Life balance, family balance, you know, something had happened at the drop of a hat and I'd just say, yeah, I can deploy, I can go. You know, my young bloke would ring up and go, oh, Dad, you should have been here. He said, I scored the final goal, you know, under nine soccer, I scored yep. the final goal, you should have been here. I'm thinking I shouldn't. I'm in doing the lonely man thing in a motel at, you know, Yurunga or somewhere in the, you know, <laughs> having done rescue training. And looking back now, I, I suppose I, I would probably have learnt to say no at times, not right. all the time, but I probably should have said no at times. Um, and I always was like when I left, I had 4,300 hours sick leave, which is a lot of sick leave. Um, wow. Yeah, you yeah. haven't had a sick day. Yeah. Ever. So, which is no, not really. And, I suppose that was indicative of my level of keenness and yeah. passion and and a, in a comparison that sort of also happened with the family that I probably was, as I said, I never said no. I was always backing up the courses and things to instruct even though I'd just come off a, you know, a, a trip to the country for a week training. Uh, yeah. I'd come home and that night be up, wouldn't see the kids and I'd be off again on another one and, and in retrospect I suppose I, I should have said no to certain things. So always look after your family. Um, which which I've learnt now, Bruce. Finally, uh, what what would you do differently, or um, you know, alternatively, what would you tell your eighteen year old self if you had the time again? Certainly, to look after yourself yep. better. Um, be committed, but be make sure you've got a really good balance. I think that's important. <clears throat> the one thing I, I suppose is. Um, I didn't realise what I was getting in for when I was a young firefighter. I didn't realise that there'd be international, and no one did then, international deployments. Yep. Urban search and rescue, disaster assistance response wasn't even thought of. So I suppose if I was talking to someone across the table over a beer about who was about to join fire and rescue as an 18-year-old, so putting yep. myself in, is, and I kind of like fire rescue's motto of uh, be prepared for anything, and that's in life but also in the job. And I think that really does sum up what being a firefighter or being an emergency, you know, a first responder uh, is all about. And it's what, what you're told uh, is not necessarily really the type of work that you're going to do, even on a day-to-day -day basis. You just, mm -hmm. you just can't, you know, be prepared for the, 
the the impossible and be prepared for things that you, you wouldn't even imagine. So that's the advice I'd give. And it's a very dynamic, as I've described over 40 years, a very dynamic um, job to be in emergency services uh, generally. Uh, mm. It's and in another 40 years, it's going to be, you know, different. we've seen RPAS and drones and all yeah, that. Yeah, you know, it'll be a different it's, landscape it's be again. Different mm. landscape again. But certainly if you look at it broadly, yeah, be prepared for anything um, and, and make sure that you look after yourself and um, and in your family. Mm. Yeah, I think absolutely. we could all take a – all operational people could take a leaf out of your book, Bruce, in, yeah, yeah. in how you've actually uh, done what you've done outside of work and made that balance, mm. um, you know, pretty evident. So um, anyway, Bruce, we've been talking for, a, you know, well over an hour and a half. I – Really appreciate your time uh, and your story. As I said before, um, thanks so much for for uh, sharing all of that amazing career with us and and the listeners. And um, I'm a little bit, uh, I suppose I'm I'm humbled by your acceptance to come on this with me because you know the amazing stuff you've done, you know, outshines most most other people that are in your circles you know like there's not a lot of people that have got the 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 runs on the board so to speak or the the actual operational experience and mm. and the um the the amazing events that you've been to and, and been through and we, we haven't even touched on all of them like you've been you were at the canberra bushfires mm. you've mm-hmm. you know there's so many other things that we could have talked about that um that are that are there but look thanks again for everything you've done thanks for what you will do um I know you're still active in so many other ways now and even still linked to uh, emergency service worker support with um, some of the other activities you're Mm. doing down south. So I'm sure we'll hear about them down the track. But, um, look, thanks again for your time, Bruce. No, thanks, Matt. It's been great to, you know, share share the yarns. And, um, yeah, it's been been a really engaging and fulfilling career. But it's, yeah, I'm looking forward to retirement now. So, um, well, make sure you retire. Yeah, I will. I know you too well to know (laughs) that's probably not going to happen. Yeah. It's a, it's a new phase. It's a new life and yeah, a new chapter. So, um, yeah, I I don't certainly don't ever regret being a fiery. It's been, been a wonderful journey Yeah, and thanks for the opportunity to share it with you and the listeners. So thank you. Thank you, Bruce. So, Bruce, just uh, as a final uh, closure, if people want to get in contact with you about anything that you've talked about or, you know, there might be some young fireys out there that are after a bit of advice from someone that can now speak freely because you're retired, um, how can they get in contact with you? Um, oh, listen, I've only really got a Facebook page, just Bruce Cameron. It's a picture of uh, rock climbing in the Blue Mountains on it. That's the picture. So if you see a guy swinging through a roof on a, uh, on a rock climb up at uh, Mount Victoria, that's my Facebook page. Cool. Right on. All right, thanks again, Bruce. Thanks, mate. You've been listening to the Heart to Heart Walk podcast. Please support this podcast and the people involved by following us on Facebook and Instagram and leave a review on your favourite podcast platform to help us reach more people. The Heart to Heart Walk website and social media details are in the show notes.